everyone. Welcome to CCL's June monthly call. I'm Flannery Winchester. I'm a member of CCL staff, and I'm so glad you're here. I'm speaking to you today from the Omni Shoreham Hotel in Washington, DC, because Citizens Climate Lobby is here in our nation's capital for our 2022 June conference. This is our first in-person event since the pandemic began. So we're tested and we're masked up when we're together and we're ready to roll. In a few minutes, you're going to hear from this month's guest speaker, Neil Chatterjee. Neil is a former chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which you may know as the acronym FERC. Prior to his time at the commission, Neil served as an advisor to Senator Mitch McConnell, where he aided in the passage of major energy, highway, and agriculture legislation. These days, you can hear Neil discussing the latest energy issues on his podcast, Plugged In, and we're lucky to be able to hear from him firsthand today. And Neil, I'll hand it over to you in just a second, um, but I'd like to take a moment to tell you a bit about the people who are dialed into the call today and who are watching the recording. These are people who are deeply passionate about solving climate change, and they're committed to doing whatever it takes to fix the problem. Many of the CCL volunteers on the call have spent years, some up to a decade, pushing for carbon fee and dividend legislation at the national level. And they've watched with concern as climate change has continued to advance, so they're eager to do whatever it takes to fix the problem and bring emissions down quickly. So we're very excited to hear from you about your perspective on carbon pricing and building the clean energy economy. So Neil, we'll hand it over to you. Thank you so much, uh, everyone, for the opportunity to speak to you today, uh, albeit virtually. Um, I'm, for one, I'm quite ready to get back to in-person gatherings, but uh, understand that we're not quite around the corner yet, but I uh, do appreciate this chance today. Uh, so I thought it would be best if I just started with a little bit of uh, background. Um, it was mentioned in the intro um, that, um, you know, I worked for Senator McConnell and was chairman of FERC. I think it's important to note at the onset that, you know, I'm a Republican from Kentucky who worked for Mitch McConnell and was appointed chairman of FERC by Donald Trump. Yet I made very clear from early on in my tenure that I believe that climate change was real that man had a significant impact and that we needed to take steps to mitigate emissions, but that I wasn't in favor of overreaching regulations or subsidies or mandates. And that I really preferred a market-based approach. Uh, and, and that was sort of the ethos that I brought to my role at FERC. Uh, now, before I get to my tenure at FERC, what I learned there, what I witnessed uh, having the good fortune to having a front row seat to the energy transition, uh, I think it's worth taking a little bit of a step back to see how we got to where we are in terms of the energy and environmental policy landscape and the politics around these issues. Um, there was a time when energy and environmental policy issues were not political. When I first came to Washington in the early 2000s, the chairman and the ranking member of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee were both from New Mexico, one Republican, one Democrat. And as uh, the political power in the Senate swapped back and forth in the early 2000s, they would hand the committee gavel back to each other Yet the agenda of the committee didn't change because energy wasn't political and they were both doing what was in their interests for New Mexico. 
And national politics didn't really intrude on the underlying policy. And what you often found was that Democrats in Appalachia had far more in common with Republicans in the Southeast than uh, they did with Democrats in the West. And Republicans in the Northeast had a lot more in common with Democrats in the Northeast than they did with Republicans in the Southwest. And that was the case for some time. And uh, it's really unfortunate that we allowed politics to intrude on uh, what had typically been non-political, non-partisan uh, policy matters. I think back to 2008, John McCain was the Republican nominee for president of the United States, and he was the primary author of a cap and trade bill to mitigate carbon emissions. Mitt Romney was the 2012 nominee for president of the United States. He is now openly in favor of a price on carbon. So there was a time when senior leaders in the Republican Party were willing to step out on climate change. And I think, unfortunately, it was during the Obama administration that the politics shifted and started to become more polarized. And as an end result, it is now very difficult to almost impossible to get something serious done legislatively at the federal level to address climate change, really to address energy policy, period. Uh, the last energy policy bill uh, enacted by Congress that really significantly reformed uh, the, the uh, energy policy and modernized it was the Energy Policy Act of 2005. Think about that. EPACT 05 was the last significant bill passed by Congress to kind of lay out the parameters of, of how federal energy policy and carbon mitigation policy should be conducted. In the subsequent years, since the Energy Policy Act of 2005, most energy policy has been adopted either via omnibus appropriations bills or through changes in the tax code. And as a result, a lot of the key decisions regarding our energy future, regarding the energy transition, have fallen to the states and have fallen to federal agencies like FERC that quite frankly don't have the tools to tackle these complicated questions around the energy transition. And so that brings me to my tenure at FERC and some of the challenges that I had to deal with and you know, how I went about them. And, you know, I'll start with a big one and it's one that quite frankly, I handled poorly. So in my first few months on the commission, um, you know, I was appointed and the Department of Energy submitted a notice of proposed rulemaking uh, regarding uh, a, a sort of a new subject called grid resilience. And so uh, the, the basis for this rule that the Department of Energy submitted to FERC was that certain baseload power plants, namely coal and nuclear plants, were being retired at a rapid pace and that the resulting occurrence would be threats to the reliability and resiliency of the grid. Now, this was a serious issue uh, and one that was correct for DOE to raise, but quite frankly, I'm, I'm fairly culpable uh, in, in mishandling it and injecting an element of politics into it. I had just spent nearly a decade as Senator McConnell's energy policy advisor advocating for the communities that he represented, which tended to be coal communities in Kentucky. Um, and I struggled to make the transition from partisan legislative aid to independent regulator. Um, and I really learned from that, but it, 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 it was a rough start to my tenure at FERC. 
And unfortunately, it took what is a serious issue that needs uh, proper addressing and injected politics into it. There was a sense that I was going to make a decision that wasn't grounded in facts or the law or the, the docket before us because FERC is a quasi-judicial agency that I was gonna allow my own personal politics to infect the decision. Now, fortunately, I voted the right way. My colleagues and I all unanimously voted that the policy as submitted to the commission was legally infirm, but it was the manner in which I, I went about it and the rhetoric that really riled markets because people thought that politics was going to be in, injected into this serious issue. And, and, and looking back, I really regret that because much of what has transpired since uh, has only further exacerbated these questions about the energy transition and how to handle the energy transition. Um, and, and I do wish I hadn't injected this element of politics at the onset. But I went on through the remainder of my tenure at FERC, learning from that initial misstep on how to really be an independent regulator and try to handle some of these complicated situations. In some instances, I cut deals with my Democratic colleagues and others with my Republican colleagues. And I really felt like we took a balanced approach to energy policy. I focus a lot on uh, LNG, liquefied natural gas exports. I felt and still do to this day that US LNG um, is cleaner than Russian LNG and Qatari LNG, uh, that it has a positive economic benefit in the US. And as we are seeing now so more than ever in the aftermath of Vladimir Putin's horrific incursion in Ukraine, invasion in Ukraine, um, US LNG has a positive geopolitical value in that giving our allies an alternative to Russian gas is clearly uh, in, in our geopolitical interests. Uh, but I would recognize working with my colleagues that you know we have to be cognizant of the emissions profile of this type of, uh, uh, of production and exportation. And so I worked with my colleagues on a bipartisan compromise in which FERC would for the first time uh, analyze the direct GHG impacts of any facility that we cited. And I thought this was a good example of a balanced approach to energy policy, that the US could take advantage of being a net exporter of energy for the first time in 60 years, enable our economy, empower ourselves geopolitically, but also be cognizant of the environmental impact of what we are doing. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I tried to carry that out in, in other areas. Um, uh, I was heavily focused uh, on renewable energy. From the moment I came to FERC, um, you know, I, I made the case that there is a strong business case for clean energy, that at their onset, renewables, their growth was largely driven by subsidies and mandates and regulations, but that that was no longer the case and that we needed uh, as conservatives to embrace the clean energy transition and the opportunities in the renewable energy space. And I actually went to Wall Street and met with financiers and they all told me that they were very bullish on the future of clean energy. And I admonished them. I said, you guys are the folks who back Republican candidates for office at the state and federal level. It is imperative that you tell them that you are in favor of the clean energy transition and, and the opportunities that can be provided uh, uh, financially to invest in clean energy and, and change this sort of old school notion that I really think is antiquated and frustrating that if you're for fossil fuels, you're of the political right. And if you're for clean energy, you're of the political left. Uh, I, I just think that is an outmoded way of thinking. And, and I, I went out there and made the business case for clean energy. And, and I really wasn't rebuked by my colleagues 
colleagues uh, on the political right. Uh, I furthermore uh, took what I thought were conservative approaches to better enabling the deployment of clean energy technologies. We moved some pretty significant rulemaking during my time at FERC. Um, for those of you who don't follow the commission that closely, I'm not gonna get too deep into the weeds, uh, but essentially uh, the first significant order we moved was something called FERC Order 841, which uh, uh, removed barriers to entry for battery storage technologies. It enabled battery storage technologies to be compensated for all of their attributes, for capacity, for energy, for ancillary services. And I really thought this was a smart conservative approach to accelerating the deployment of clean energy technologies. This wasn't a subsidy, this wasn't a mandate, this was simply allowing these innovative new technologies to compete and to be compensated. And I felt rightly that uh, that would incentivize the greater deployment of these resources, as well as drive innovation uh, to, to further grow the capacity of what batteries can offer. Uh, the second order that I think is, uh, uh, in my view, I'm obviously biased, but I think is probably the most significant order ever issued by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Uh, and we issued that in September of 2020, and that was called FERC Order 2222, 2222, or 2x4. And what it did was it removed barriers to entry for aggregated distributed energy resources. Here, think rooftop solar, advanced appliances, electric vehicles, and the reason I was really excited about the prospects for this particular rulemaking is that when you think about it, 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 it could potentially fundamentally alter the way that America uh, distributes, generates, and consumes power. If you're a single electric vehicle owner, you have no ability to impact the power market. But if through the power of aggregation, we can harness thousands upon thousands of electric vehicle owners surplus power, then suddenly, you're competing with the power plant down the street and you're providing power where the demand is most acute. And so this really has the, the capacity to be transformative. And what I think is most exciting about it is that this uh, power sector rule, this power sector reform, if it leads to just another incentive that accelerates the deployment of electric vehicles, not only can we reduce power sector emissions with potentially can reduce uh, auto sector emissions, vehicle sector emissions as well. And that could really, really have a significant impact in terms of carbon mitigation in the US. And so these were just some of the things that I was proudest of undertaking at FERC. Um, but to bring it around, ultimately, what I really wrestled with the most was some of those core questions that, um, that came about in that Department of Energy rulemaking. Uh, and that was around how decisions were being made in regards to resource adequacy and reliability. And so to, to tie everything together, what essentially has been happening is that in the absence of federal legislative guidance on carbon mitigation, it has really fallen to the states to set policies regarding their own efforts to decarbonize. But in doing so, certain states that participate in multi-state markets have created a scenario where their policy initiatives we're distorting the efficient functioning of the markets. So for example, if you have a state that is pursuing a particular uh, policy objective and they are subsidizing their preferred sources of generation and that policy choice is having a negative impact on another state's ability to have its resources uh, 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 be dispatched and that state doesn't support your state's efforts, 
it really causes market uncertainty and it was incumbent upon the federal regulator to step in. And we did something that was perceived to be very contentious and moved to this very complicated policy called a minimum offer price rule that basically forced generators to bid in their true costs, not their subsidized costs within the markets. And what this did was it created a panic that this was gonna drive up consumer costs and it was gonna hurt renewables and nuclear since those were largely the technologies that were receiving state level subsidies. Now, what we ultimately found was that that negative impact was overstated, that renewables were still dispatched, nuclear was still competitive, and that we restored some balance to the market and brought down consumer costs. But because of the contentious nature of the policy, it led certain states and certain generators to contemplate dropping out of the markets. Now, I am a big believer in markets. I believe markets have uh, drive cost discipline and innovation. And what we have seen in the US is that markets have been very effective in enabling us to decarbonize. Let's think about it for a moment. I started talking about the political polarization around climate change that started during the Obama era. Uh, you know, the Waxman Markey cap and trade bill was never signed into law. The Obama era clean power program uh, out of EPA uh, was stayed by the Supreme Court. President Trump pulled the US out of the uh, uh, COP, uh, uh, I think it was COP 21 uh, uh, climate accords. Uh, and yet, power sector emissions in the US continue to decline in the face of that because of the economic case for clean energy, because of consumer demand and because of market functioning. And look, everyone, as we become more aware of our sources of power, consumers from uh, Fortune 50 companies to small mom and pop businesses to individual households are now more aware of their carbon footprint and their power utilization and are demanding cleaner sources of energy. And that market impact is having a positive benefit. So here I was faced with a conundrum where these various state policies were causing market uncertainty, but the efforts we took to counteract that were potentially going to lead to the demise of the markets. And I couldn't tolerate either outcome. I wanted efficient markets and I wanted them to continue to function. And so in, in my view, where I landed was on what I thought was the most effective policy approach that would navigate this complex dynamic. And that was the introduction of a price on carbon in FERC jurisdictional markets. And so working with my democratic colleague who's now chair of the commission, we put forward a policy statement, which is effectively a roadmap laying out the parameters by which a state or a FERC jurisdictional RTO or ISO could come to the commission with a price on carbon and, and amend their tariff to address that price on carbon. And I actually think that this is a really smart conservative approach to climate change. And every economist you talk to across the political spectrum agrees. Yet the politics of this are just very challenging. And in my example is, uh, is, is evident of it. Uh, two days after the election, I was fired as chairman of FERC by President Trump, uh, largely because of my uh, advocacy for a price on carbon. Uh, but since I left the commission, I think you are increasingly seeing folks embrace this as a smart approach to policy. You're seeing you know, the American Petroleum Institute, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the uh, Electric Power Supply Association, all coming out in favor of a price on carbon. And so uh, I, I do think we are making progress in this regard. I'm under no illusion that it will be easy 
But I think there is an increased recognition that we need to take steps to decarbonize, but in the process, we can't sacrifice reliability, energy security, uh, and, and quite frankly, affordability. And that brings me to my final point. Um, we are in a situation where because of all of these myriad factors that I have described, we are having political actors make decisions about resource adequacy and reliability, not engineers. And the end result of that is I am very concerned that we may see some instances this summer of genuine threats to reliability. We've already seen some of these reliability threats emerge in the past couple of years uh, in California and in Texas. So here you have a, uh, a progressive state in California, a conservative state in Texas. California's grid was taken to the brink by extreme heat and wildfires. Texas's grid was taken to the brink by an unexpected cold front. And the, re the reality of it is, is uh, climate change doesn't care uh, if you're a Republican or Democrat, if you're a progressive state or uh, a conservative state. And we all need to collectively work together to ensure that we can maintain reliability and resource adequacy while decarbonizing. And it's increasingly more challenging because the reality is climate change is going to put further pressure on the grid Yet some of the steps that are being taken to address climate change are also exposing some of the underlying vulnerabilities being faced by the grid. And that is why, in my view, a carbon price would be so effective. So what we are seeing in the absence of a price on carbon is that decisions are being made to retire certain forms of generation, and they're being done so before their replacements are in place. In California, there were some gas plants that were prematurely retired before the balancing resources were available. And that led to capacity shortfalls. And you've got grid operators in different regions talking about that possibility this summer, that there were certain plants that have been retired that would be necessary to keep the lights on. And they were retired before their replacements were ready. Uh, and, and this could be a significant problem because when you have a really, really hot summer or a really, really cold winter and the power goes out, um, lives are at risk. Uh, and so it's a serious thing. Uh, and I think it's something that we all need to address and can do in, in, in a smart way. And so I finally think that, you know, for me, people ask me all the time, okay, Neil, you've been at the space, you know, you're, you're there. What can we do to really address climate change and tackle these complex issues while maintaining reliability and energy security, as well as affordability? Uh, we could see bills spike by 200% this summer, which will have further detrimental impact on the American people who are already feeling the pressure in other areas of their lives. And my solution, and I'm not saying this to be funny, is to make energy boring again. When energy policy is boring, and you take the politics out of it and you let the engineers and the economists and the lawyers sort it out, I believe you can get constructive solutions that will put us on a path to decarbonize while maintaining reliability and affordability. Uh, and it's really doable. And, 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 and I think there are sensible people at the state and federal and international level that are willing to engage in this policy conversation and get these constructive outcomes. And I think my final point is really to make them work and to be effective. They need to be bipartisan. And I think one of the mistakes that has been made is climate change is being seen as an issue that is owned by the political left. And I think that's a huge, huge mistake because as I mentioned at the onset, there was a period in time where Republicans were not just willing, but were thrilled to lead on climate change. Look at the example of Senator McCain. And so uh, 
I don't know how we can put the genie back in the bottle, but I am out there participating on forums like this today because I want to speak to audiences on both the right and the left to say there are conservatives who take climate change seriously, who aren't trying to deliberately slow the energy transition, who are simply saying we need to be smart about how we go about all this. Uh, with that, I've been rambling for some time, and so uh, I want to be sensitive, and I've seen a bunch of questions uh, 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 come up in the chat box. I haven't had a chance to read them, so maybe I'll take a pause and, uh, and, and answer your all's questions. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing all of that, Neil. Um, so yes, folks have been putting some questions in the uh, in the Q and A. So we, uh, I will take the most upvoted one. Um, that may be all we have time for. But um, we have a question from Amy um, who asks, "What do you think of the Republicans' new energy and climate plan?" Um, she notes that it uh, that it does call for increasing fossil fuel production and is wondering, um, does it actually benefit the climate? Do you have a take on that that new plan? Yes, so look, um, uh, I, I haven't looked at the plan in great detail, but I just think it is important. Like, let's not lose sight of the fact that um, the, the House Republican, likely to be majority in the next Congress, is at least putting forward proposals to address climate change. And so I understand that it's not ideal uh, in the views of some, uh, and again, I'm speaking as someone who has not had a chance yet to review uh, the policy in any level of detail. I've just read headlines. And so my takeaway, not knowing the underlying substance, is that it is very encouraging to me that this likely future House Republican majority will at least, with, with, with Kevin McCarthy leading it, um, propose solutions to address carbon mitigation and climate change. And so I can't comment on the specifics other than to say you know, the alternative would be to continue to just have no solution to addressing climate change at all. And, and look, we're in a complex period of time right now. I think there's broad agreement that in light of what is happening in Russia and the urgency to move away from Russian gas, that we need to uh, enable our European allies to move away from Russian gas and provide alternatives. And that might mean increased fossil fuel production in the short term here in the US. And I understand the concern. Look, Americans, like we, we, we are so divided, we can't even agree that today is Saturday. But we seem to be aligned on helping the Ukrainian people. And there's a way to do this. There are ways that we can work out agreements with our European allies to where they can perhaps provide the capital upfront to enable these US LNG exporters to capitalize their, their, their you know, huge CapEx projects and export gas to our European allies at a time when they need it for geopolitical reasons and energy security reasons, but not lock in those emissions for the foreseeable future. And there's finding, there's complex financing structures. You can have a conversation about this. And that's what I'm talking about here. And like we, the folks who say no more fossil fuels tomorrow and the folks who say climate change doesn't exist, I don't wanna to talk to folks on either side. I wanna have a constructive conversation where we factor in that energy reliability and security are real things to consider but that we also have to be cognizant that we are not locking in fossil fuels and GHG emissions unnecessarily. And that's, there's a productive conversation to be had there. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Neil, for sharing your expertise today. Um, I, unfortunately, we don't have time for more, to take more questions live. If you wanna browse through the Q&A, you're welcome to. Um, but I, I, I ask folks if, uh, so I'm on Twitter at F-E-R-C-H-A-T-T-E-R-J-E-E, -E -E. uh, direct message me on Twitter with your questions and I'll happily respond. 
There we go. Well, thank you so much for that uh, accessibility there. That's wonderful. Um, so we're going to do some organizational updates now, and you're welcome to stay on. But I also know that you're a, you're a busy man, so if you need to drop off the call, that's fine. I'm going to stay on a minute just to read the chat box, but I'm going to go off video. All right. Thank you again, Neil. Thank you all. All right, so as I mentioned at the start of the call, we are here at our Citizens Climate Lobby annual June conference. We had more than 600 volunteers registered to attend and it's been so exciting today to see folks start to arrive at the hotel and post on social media during their travel. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to volunteers Bruce and Janet from Minnesota who were actually featured in an article in their local Northfield News about traveling to DC for this event. So thanks for being here uh, and for using that opportunity to educate your community even more about climate advocacy. So we'll kick off the conference tonight with a screening of the film, Climate Emergency Feedback Loops. And we actually are lucky enough to have the producer of the film, Bonnie Walsh, here to tell us a bit about the film and how you can access it uh, if you're not here in DC for the screening tonight. So um, Bonnie, you wanna take a few Hi. minutes to tell us about the film? Yeah, thanks so much, Glannery. It's great to be here. I'm actually in Washington, DC. I'm downtown at a library right now talking to you. <laughs> and I'm excited for the conference to kick off tonight. Um, as Flannery said, I'm, I'm the senior producer and writer of um, what began as a series of five short films called Climate Emergency Feedback Loops, which are short science programs that explain how the warming climate is kicking in Earth's own natural warming cycles and why they're important to understand if we want to tackle climate change. Um, our goal was to educate people about these dangerous amplifying loops that are leading to tipping points in the climate. And stylistically, we decided to follow Greta Thunberg's advice to listen to the scientists. And so we interviewed leading climate scientists about their work around feedback loops. And we launched the films in 2021, January, with a virtual panel with the Dalai Lama and Greta, who met each other for the first time virtually. Um, and we showed clips of our films and over, uh, over a million people attended from around the world. And then the short films caught the eye of a distributor in the UK who wanted to make a one hour broadcast version. So we actually edited the five films together to make a TV show called Earth Emergency, which aired on PBS in December and again in April. And it's been sold to TV stations around the world. So the message is getting out there, which is great. And um, since then, we've been really lucky to show the films at film festivals. Um, we did a series with the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History last summer. We showed the one hour at the invitation of Prince Charles at COP26 in Glasgow. And what we'd love is to get these films to policymakers. And we had an incredible opportunity a couple of weeks ago to show two of the short films and have two scientists give presentations on a virtual event for Massachusetts state legislators. And we had 60 people attend, which was more than we had hoped for. So we, we'd love to work with CCL chapters and have screening parties and can help plan webinars with climate scientists. And we're really eager to, to partner with, with all the chapters and try to get these films out there. So if you're not coming tonight and you can't see the films, they're up for free on a website, accessible to everyone, along with um, state standard science curriculum for grades six through 12 um, and discussion guides, because we're really encouraging teachers to use these short films to teach environmental science and climate science. And the website, I'll put it in the chat too, but the website is um, 
It's just feedbackloopsclimate.com. Um, so if you go to feedbackloopsclimate.com, you can watch all five films. If you're a PBS member, you can see Earth Emergency on PBS Passport and on the Amazon PBS channel. You can also rent it from iTunes. Um, so we really would love to partner with chapters. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can go to our website and fill out the contact us form. And I'd love to hear from you and see what we can do together to get these films out there in the world. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Bonnie. Sure. Uh, so if folks are not here in person and you want to follow along from home with the film or our other programming during the conference, um, make sure you register for the live streams. Uh, we will put that link in the chat. And actually the same link we're putting in the chat is the link where you can actually join any of the sessions for the rest of the conference, including the film tonight. Um, so thank you so much, Bonnie. We've got a few other organizational updates, but we appreciate your uh, being here. All right, so um, as far as sessions that you can uh, tune into virtually, I will just also give a little plug for um, Madeline Perez opening remarks tomorrow morning, our executive director. Um, she will share some insights into CCL's next steps as an organization. Uh, and then after the conference, volunteers have arranged hundreds of lobby meetings, both in person and virtual throughout the month of June to keep pushing Congress for climate action. And speaking of conferences, we've had some other exciting events in May that I want to acknowledge. CCL Canada had their conference in Ottawa at the beginning of last month, as well as a lobby day on Parliament Hill. So congratulations to all of our dedicated Canadian volunteers for making that event happen uh, and our international staff as well, Citizens Climate International. And CCL West Virginia hosted a faith leaders conference last weekend, bringing together about 60 West Virginians at the First Presbyterian Church in Charleston. They got supportive messages sent to the conference from Senator Shelley Moore Capito and Senator Joe Manchin. Uh, and in his letter, Senator Manchin said, to address climate change, we must face it head on, on a global scale and in every sector of our economy. So that's great to hear, as we know, talks on budget reconciliation are ongoing in the Senate. So great works to our folks in West Virginia for continuing to build the grassroots there uh, and continuing to engage with your members of Congress. Now, what can you be doing this month? On the June action sheet, which you can find on the CCL website and on CCL community, we have a few suggested actions. First is getting going on election season activities. As we look ahead to the midterm elections, we know it's very important for voters who prioritize climate and environmental issues to show up to the polls and to make their voices heard. It's also important to convey to candidates throughout campaign season that climate change really matters to the people they want to represent. So with that in mind, we suggest you do things like phone bank or write postcards with the Environmental Voter Project to help get environmentalists to vote. This is something that you and your chapter can do individually or as a group. You can also attend candidates' campaign events or town halls and ask questions that encourage the candidates to take a strong public position on climate change and to make it a high priority in their campaign. There's a communication exercise in the action sheet to help you practice asking a candidate an effective question. We also have an election season media kit that you can use for guidance on writing letters to the editor, op-eds, and sending pitches to reporters about climate change during election season. 
So we've set a goal of 400 campaign season activities between now and September 30th. So you can help us reach that goal by phone banking, postcarding, attending town halls, and so on. Uh, and then by logging in the action tracker, all of those election season events. Another activity you can work on this month is setting meetings with community leaders who are influential with your members of Congress and build relationships with them to gain their support. You can find more details about that and all the election season activities on the June action sheet. So that's it for this month. Thank you everyone for being on the call today. Over the next few days, you can follow along with the conference hashtag on social media. That's hashtag CCL 2022 uh, to see what we're up to at the conference. And then we'll see you on next month's call. Thanks everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.